The first passage is from Exodus chapter 19, verses 1 to 6. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called out to, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. The next passage from Matthew. Matthew chapter 5, verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but understand that it gives light to all in the house. The third passage is from 1 Peter. 1 Peter 2, chapter 4, uh, verse 4. As he come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion's stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honour is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that they may speak against you as evildoers. They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Heavenly Father, I'm going to read a passage this morning that contains exalted truths about how you have changed us. So we ask that you would take these words and by the great power of the Holy Spirit, embed them deeply in our minds and hearts. And then we ask in your kindness that you would take that word and help it to grow into assurance of our identity and confidence to live before you. As we hear this word, we pray that you will awaken our dulled ears, confront any laziness or apathy in our faith, and help us to live as your chosen, beloved people in Christ. We ask this for the glory of your Son and our joy, in Jesus' name. Amen. So what does a bad guy look to you? When you think of the movies or stories that you've read, there's always kind of a cliched version of a bad guy. 
a dark, brooding look, half eyes open. I just noticed as I was Googling, bad guys always have their eyes squinting. What is, what is with that? Anyway, shady character who doesn't like lighting for some reason. They're always in the dark. Now, that's in the movies and the stories, but in real life, in real life, it can be a bit hard to discern who is a bad guy on first look. Sometimes it's hard to see from the outside if someone is a bad person or a bad guy. But what if I told you that there is actually a relatively easy way to work out who is a bad guy or not? Would you be interested in finding out? Yeah? All right, let's do this little test. Here's what you need to do. Look to the person on your left. Look to the person on your right. Who is the bad guy? Who's the bad guy? All of you. Anyone here who says they follow Jesus, you are the bad guy. That's how it feels, doesn't it? In our day and age, Christians are increasingly seen as the bad guys, and you know what that's like. You know the conversations with your non-Christian friends that didn't go well. You were trying to explain your views on a topic, and they so disagreed that the conversation ended really badly. You know what it's like to hear your work colleagues get really worked up and angry about some Christian view on a particular issue. You see it and you read about it in the news of how Christians are derided. We saw that last year with Andrew Thorburn, who got appointed as CEO of a football club and less than 24 hours later was publicly forced to resign simply because he was associated with an evangelical church. And then you saw the media pile on. Not just journalists, but even politicians. The Premier of Victoria, who came out and said that the beliefs of Andrew Thorburn, basic Christian beliefs, were bigoted and abhorrent. None of us think we're the bad guys, yet here we are. More and more we're being painted with these brushstrokes and it makes us feel nervous. We shut up. We hide our views. It silences our witnessing and testifying to the gospel because we don't want to cause trouble. How many of us have caught ourselves staying silent when we could have said something? Is it because we don't want to be seen as the bad guys? Peter knew this as well. And the Christians that Peter was writing to knew this feeling as well. They too were being painted as the bad guys in the world. So Peter wrote this letter to reassure them about their Christian identity, an identity that shapes how we live before a cynical and skeptical world, a world that speaks against Christians as evildoers, a world that saw Christians as the bad guys. And then 20 centuries later, it feels like we're back again in the time of Peter. And so his words to us in this letter are all the more important for us to hear. So far, Peter has laid out the wondrous news that Christians have been given new life through the Word of God. And with this new life, they long for God's Word and so that they will continue to grow in their faith. 
and they love each other zealously. And so our passage begins almost mid-breath as Peter continues on, as he begins to reassure his listeners that being the bad guys is actually not a bad thing. Now, before we dive into verses 4 to 8 and point 1, I want to flag that this entire passage is just saturated with Old Testament metaphors and a lot of Old Testament quotes. Uh, In the outline, I've given some of the direct quotes in brackets, so you can kind of chase them up later and check the context for yourself. I'm going to summarize as best we can and so that we don't get completely lost in all the glorious detail, but I am going to get really excited about these things, and when I get excited, I talk too much like I am doing right now. So let's keep going. Now, in our opening point, Peter is layering all of these Old Testament images on top of each other. Now, in doing this, he's saying two things about being bad guys. First, he says the church is a gathering of believers that are to be like Jesus. And second, he says that this gathering is to be centered on Jesus, to be like Jesus and centered on Jesus. First, we kick off in verse 4. As you come to him, as you come to Jesus, as you are coming to Jesus in your daily personal relationship with him, you are going to be changed and transformed. You are going to become more like Jesus. And what does Jesus look like? Again, look at verse 4. He is a living stone. Now, this is a slightly strange metaphor since stones are not alive. But we'll pick up the stone imagery more in a second. Brief emphasis here is that the stone is living. Jesus is alive. We have an ongoing relationship with someone who is real, who is alive today. It's a real relationship, but not a relationship that everyone enjoys. You see in verse 4, that Jesus was rejected by men. In, this li- in his life on earth, as recorded in the Gospels, we see this, full, this rejection in full color, a rejection that led ultimately to his betrayal, his torture, and his death. And yet even though he was rejected, he is, in God's sight, chosen and precious. Now, the word chosen there in verse 4, it's the same word as elect all the way back at the introduction that Peter gave in chapter 1. Jesus is preeminently God's chosen one, chosen by God as the one who would fulfill his plans and promises. And Jesus is precious to God, prized and valued above all. One of the most important tasks as a church is that we value Jesus in the same way that God does to show the world that Jesus is more treasured and more precious to us than anything else in the world. See, in one little verse, verse 4, Peter has packed a lot about who Jesus is. And he says this because as we come to this glorious picture of Jesus, that changes us. Verse 5, like the living stone of Jesus, we are like living stones as well. And together, all these stones are piled up and built up together as a spiritual house and a holy priesthood. Language here of the Old Testament temple where God's presence lived and where the priests mediated the presence of God to the world. Now it's the church, the gathering of God's people, not this building where God's presence lives. He lives in us, and he is among us as we gather. And we, his people, are set apart for the special role of mediating God's presence to this 
well, to lead in worship and to offer spiritual sacrifices. See, so many people in our world want some connection to God. And here's the biblical truth and the biblical challenge if we should hear it. The church gathering is the place where God's presence is felt. Paul said, Paul, the Apostle Paul said that when the church is gathered and people are loving each other and speaking encouragements to each other and praying for each other, then when a non-Christian enters into that gathering, they will fall down on their knees and say, God, truly, he is here among you. Are we like that? Are we a people who are looking more like Jesus so that people can say that God really is with us? Secondly, our our church is to be centered on Jesus. Now, to make this point, Peter again lays a number of quotes from Isaiah and Psalms. And and stick with me as we work through this bit, uh, this stone imagery in a second. There's going to be a bit of hard work as we look through verses 6 to 8 together, but I hope it pays off uh, for us all. Right, so uh, let's have a look at this stone imagery. Verse 6 first. Uh, we've got this quote from Isaiah 28. Now, in context in Isaiah, Isaiah was speaking to Israel's leaders, and he was saying that God was rejecting Israel's bad leaders, and then he would respond by laying down a foundation stone, a cornerstone, a new leader for his people, a new leader in the rebuilding of God's temple and the rebuilding of God's people. Already, Peter has said in chapter 1, verse 10 to 12, that the prophets of old had it revealed to them that they weren't speaking just for their audience, but for Christians and for those who who would have it fulfilled for them in Jesus. Peter makes the connection here clear. From Isaiah to Peter's audience, the stone that God was laying down, the cornerstone that is chosen and precious, is none other than Jesus himself. Jesus is the leader of God's new people. Jesus is the center of God's plans and purposes. So much, uh, so much that he's the center of our gatherings. Should he should be the gathering? Jesus is the center of God's plans and purposes, and so much so, he should be the center of our gathering as well. Jesus is the one our attention and our whole lives are to be centered on. Christians are Jesus-centered people. And because Christians are Jesus-centered people, there is no shame but only honor in following him. From the end of verse 6 to verse 7, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame So the honor is for you who believe. Shame. You know that painful feeling of humiliation and deep embarrassment. Not not one that can be easily laughed away. It, It is deeply uncomfortable. And it happens when we have done something wrong or we are embarrassed by a situation. How does the world make us feel like following Jesus is the wrong thing? It looks, it's the look your work colleagues give you when you tell them that you went to church on the weekend. It's the mean comments from friends. It's the cesspool of comments online. It's the shouting debates, debates that make Christians look 
and sound foolish for believing what they do. And in shame, we want to hide our faith. Faith. Look again at verse 6 and 7. Listen again, listen again to these powerful words of comfort for both our heads and our hearts. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. God will never put his people to shame. God will honor his people. Whose opinion will matter more to us? Or what happens to those who reject Jesus, who take the opinion of the world more seriously than God's opinion, who look at Jesus not as chosen and precious, but as something lesser? Take a look at verses 7 to 8 in your Bibles. We've got two two quotes here in verses 7 and 8, one from Psalm 118 and another from Isaiah 8, both linking the image of the stone to salvation, right? Peter is saying that Jesus, the living stone, the cornerstone, presents an opportunity for people to trust him or to reject him. When people reject Jesus, he becomes a stumbling block, a rock of offense. This is what it means. Jesus is at the center of God's plans and purposes. Jesus offers salvation to all people. Jesus, however, demands an ethic, a way of living, morals, an attitude towards life, towards sex and money. There is no space in life, that, Je- that no area of being that Jesus doesn't claim kingship over. He demands, most importantly, that we treat him as Lord, as king. Now, people in the time of Jesus found that very offensive. People in Peter's time found that idea offensive. And just like today, the claims of Jesus and his followers are deeply offensive to some people. It is the words of Jesus that they do not like. It is the words of Jesus that they ultimately reject and disobey. But it does not take God by surprise. That's Peter's final point in verse 8. Unbelief and disobedience was there from the very beginning of humanity with Adam and Eve. And since then, everyone is born with this sinful bent towards unbelief and disobedience. Left to our own devices, our destiny is to reject God. This does not negate the choice that lies before us at all. And especially if you're here today and you're not a Christian, if you're here today and maybe you're not sure if you're a Christian, you have a friend, you have a real choice before you. Peter is not saying at the end of verse 8 that, you know, if you're not a believer, you're just simply doomed to stumbling. No, there is a real choice before you. These lines here are about Jesus being the stone, are basically a way of saying that you either embrace Jesus as God's king or you reject him. Your eternal destiny depends on your relationship to this stone. So if you're not a Christian, If you're not a Christian here, then I want to help you as best as I can to understand Jesus and why he really is more precious than any treasure in life, why Jesus is worth following no matter the cost. But if you sit here and you say, no thanks, that's on you. But God is not surprised by that. And if it doesn't take God by surprise, then Peter is saying, that believers shouldn't be surprised as well. 
because it's out of unbelief. It's out of offense at Jesus and stumbling over him that the world persecutes and mocks Christians. So if you're not a believer here, let me ask you, do you find Jesus offensive? If you don't, then please place your trust in him. Repent and be forgiven. Be reconciled to the God who loves you. If you're not sure, that's okay. For now, hold that thought. Because I want to turn to now where this passage goes and how it addresses Christians. See, here's where Peter outlines the insane privileges of being the bad guys. So if you're not sure about Jesus, read along with us as you see the incredible privileges that Christians have. Now, again, from verse 9 to 10, Peter uses a flurry of Old Testament images to explain the present status of believers, Old Testament images and metaphors to help his audience understand their identity. Reading some Bible passages is like drinking from a sensible water fountain, right? It's a steady stream of ideas, and you gulp them down slowly. The way that Peter has been writing so far is more like sticking your face in front of a fire hydrant, right? Trying to take a sip. He doesn't just want them to understand who they are. He wants to drown them in assurance and the privileges that they have in Jesus. So there are six things that Peter says, six privileges that God gives to his people and they should, uh, that they should build their lives on. And then he gives them one big purpose over all of these things. So we're going to take a quick survey of these things as well and let these truths just completely wash over you. Take a look at verse 9 and follow along with me. The first privilege in verse 9 is that they are a chosen race. They are a chosen people group. Nothing to do with ethnicity or skin color, but everything to do with their beliefs. The thing that unites the people of God together who are drawn from all sorts of different ethnic backgrounds is that they are chosen specially by God to trust Jesus. They are elected to be saved by the grace of God. It is God's grace, not human choice, which is the ultimate explanation for why the church exists. God's grace, not human choice, that is the final and decisive reason why some people come to faith and others do not, which raises the obvious question of whether or not this is fair. Why is it fair that some get to be chosen and some others don't? Is it fair? The answer is, of course not. That's the point. If God gave what was fair, if God gave what we deserve, none of us would be saved. That some are saved is pure grace, a gift based on his sovereign mercy alone. And that means that his, as his chosen race no one can boast of being included. The first privilege, being a chosen race. The second privilege, a royal priesthood. The second thing they, uh, that they are is a royal priesthood. Royal in the sense that, not that we are princes and princesses, and I'm not a big fan of that language. Royal in the sense that the church is serving the king of kings. Priests in the sense that the church is the mediating presence of God to the world and participate in the worship of God. 
The third thing that they are is a holy nation. Holy, not in a holier than thou sense, but holy as in set apart for God, to live for him and no other. A people set apart for obedience to Jesus. No other people, group, or country can make this claim. There is no Christian nation. There is no Christian country. The church is the only holy nation. Number four, they are a people for his own possession. A special reminder that even though God created and owns everything, he has, through Jesus, taken special possession of a uniquely blessed people, those who, by grace, have believed in Jesus. Now, points five and six are both picking up the language from Hosea 1 and 2, the prophet Hosea. Now, there's a very rich backstory here, so please bear with me for a minute or two as I explain it. Hosea was a prophet. Might make that name a bit bigger next time, but Hosea was a prophet who was married to a woman named Goma. Their marriage was a sort of real-life parable for Israel's relationship with God. Hosea and Goma, they have three children. They are called Jezreel, Lo-Ruhamah, and Lo-Ami. Names in the Bible always mean something. Jezreel means God scatters. God would scatter his people in exile because of their sin. Lo ruhamah means no mercy. Come here, no mercy. Right? God would not show mercy on his people any longer. It had run out. Lo ami means not my people. That's a hard name because of their persistent and unrepentant sin, God did not look upon his people as his anymore. The children are a real-life picture of God's relationship with his people, Israel. But in the kindness of God, despite their gross unfaithfulness, God changes and transforms the names of Hosea's children. Jezreel now becomes planted rather than scattered. Mercy is shown to no mercy, and Lo-Ami's name is reversed to you are my people. How does this reversal happen? It's a really stunning, as you're reading Hosea, it's just like bad, 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 and you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to change everything. And it's just, it comes out of nowhere, and it is stunning. And it's all because of God's profound love for his people, his steadfast love, his covenantal love. Now, if God is speaking to his rebellious nation of Israel in this way, it is utterly astonishing even further and should floor us that Peter now says that those truths are about the church. Gentiles who were not in relationship with God at all, not being included in all of these huge and magnificent promises of the old, are now given these promises. You take a step back and you see that in layering all of these Old Testament images, one on top of the other, God is saying something profound about believers in Christ. You are everything the Old Testament wanted in his people. You are deeply and profoundly loved by God. And not because you are somehow special not because you have earned it or deserved it, but by pure grace, all of grace, nothing but grace. 
This is what bad guys look like. This is the privilege of being a bad guy. And if you get this privilege, if you understand it, if you have embraced it, if you are astonished and floored by the grace of God that he has given to you in Jesus, then there is only one purpose you could live your life for on earth. At the end of verse 9, look with me. To proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is the spiritual sacrifice that we offer up to God that is acceptable to him. The singing and the speaking and the proclaiming of his praises and his gospel work. If what God has done for us is breathtaking, then we get to spend the rest of our lives telling everyone how breathtaking the gospel is. All of us are great evangelists. We really are, right? If you stumble upon a great restaurant, if you've heard a great song on the radio, or if you've gone to the musical Hamilton, (laughs) right, or you've watched a Marvel movie not from the last three years, (laughs) what do you do with that information? You sing its praises. You convince people that you have to go try that restaurant. You've got to listen to that song, or you've really got to check out the musical. All of us are great evangelists in some way. But not many of us feel like great evangelists when it comes to the gospel, right? Maybe not so great. And so, friends, keep meditating on these truths here in this letter. Keep swimming in the truths of the gospel that Peter has laid out for us in the past week. Crack open that fire hydrant and just let it spray over you until you are soaked and saturated. Meditate on these things. Think on them. Reflect on them until it sinks deep in and we are left astonished and amazed. Maybe you're sitting here and you're wondering if you really do believe these truths at all. Do these truths really hit me like that? Then do the same thing. Keep meditating on these truths. Speak about it with others. Fellowship with them until it sinks in and you are left astonished and amazed. There is a profound honor and privilege of being God's people of being the bad guys. The honor that God gives us is utterly astounding. It should floor us and fill us with overwhelming awe and thankfulness that everything he said about his people in the old is now freely given to us. I should want nothing more than to spend the rest of my life gladly telling people how awesome it is that God has changed my status from darkness to light. Friends, this is what bad guys look like. This is what, they look like Jesus, and they are filled to the brim with utter thankfulness. Now, is it sounding okay so far to be a bad guy? Yeah? Kind of okay? Well, in the final verses, we see what they look like in action. Uh, In verses 11 to 12, we get two commands, one negative and one positive, two overall principles of what it means to be a follower of Jesus in the world. Now, verses 11 to 12, they're going to form the applications for us today, but they are mostly going to be principles rather than specific things to do. That's because verses 11 and 12 act sort of like a threshold to the home. 
You know what the threshold is? Is that little bit of the home, the front door, just as you cross over it, you've got to cross the threshold before you enter the house and go into all the different rooms. Specific applications are going to be laid out in the coming weeks as we explore chapters 3 and 4. For now, we'll look at verses 11 and 12 and lay down the big picture principles of what bad guys look like in action. Starting with verse 11, notice that there's a negative action sandwiched between two reasons. In the middle of verse 11, this is the action. Abstain from the passions of the flesh. Say no to sin. Turn away from them. Some of these passions Peter has already flagged in his letter. Right? Chapter 2, verse 1. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. And then he'll return to some of these passions later on in the letter. Chapter 4, verse 3. For the time that is past suffices for doing what for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. These desires and these passions are anti-God. So Peter says, no. Say no. Abstain, walk away, don't entertain these desires, don't embrace them and dive headlong into them. Why? Why say no? The first reason is in the first part of verse 11. Peter urges them to say no because they are sojourners and exiles. Remember, a sojourner is a traveler, someone who is just passing through the land temporarily. I was recently a sojourner in a foreign land a land filled with a strange language, a different culture, a hectic and fast-paced lifestyle, strange smells, sometimes very strange. I was a sojourner in Singapore. I'm not Singaporean. Singapore is not my home. I was there temporarily. Sojourners are temporary residents. We Christians are temporary residents in this world. Peter also calls them exiles. We're not just temporary residents, but we have another home that we belong to. A home that we are yearning to get back to. Think of yourself this way. God took people who were at home in this world and turned them into aliens and exiles. You were at home in this world, and now if you follow Christ, you are not. Do you see yourself as a sojourner and an exile? Or are you more comfortable here? Would you say that this world really is your home? Because following Jesus means that this life, this world is temporary. There is another home that you belong to. And if that's true, then we should say no to the God-dishonoring and disobedient pleasures and passions of our sinful nature, which are tied to this world. Those desires, however, are not going to go away quietly. Just because you say no doesn't mean they'll go, yep, sorry, my mistake, right? We abstain from these passions because they also wage war against your soul. The picture of wage war is that these passions are dressed up in battle uniform and armor, and they are ready to charge and take you down. And so we need to fight. 
in the power of the Holy Spirit, with the encouragement of fellow believers, and by the grace of God, we battle. Right? It's, it's not all on you. Praise be to God that He gives us moments of victory. Every time we run headlong and give in to the passions of the flesh, it shows that we have forgotten something far greater than earthly pleasure exists. We forget that Jesus is a far greater treasure and a far more precious and more glorious to behold. To modify a C.S. Lewis quote, we become content playing in the dirt, making mud pies, because we have forgotten that we've been given an all-expenses-paid holiday to a five-star resort. That's the negative. We say no to our sinful desires, the passions of the flesh. What's the positive command in verse 12? Positive command, have a look at verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, the world out there. Keep your conduct honourable. Now, the word honourable here doesn't just carry the idea of honour and, and dignity, it does, but it also carries the idea of doing what is morally good and what is right, and even contains the idea that our actions have an aesthetic worth. They have beauty. You are to have a right attitude that comes out and actions that are good, morally right, that are also beautiful and attractive. Now, how, what does that look like? Let me give you an example of what this looks like. Uh, some of us know the Thai restaurant down at Hawken Drive, Thai Nakonlana. And the owner of that restaurant is a guy named Patrick. Patrick became a Christian a number of years ago. And he did so partly through the witness of Bible college students and staff. Queensland Theological College used to be on, uh, at near University of Queensland, and the staff and students would often go to Thai Nakonlana for lunch. And it makes sense, right? It's good food and it's cheap Thai food after all. Now, as these students and these staff kept coming, Patrick noticed that they weren't like his other customers. And one day he asked them, you guys are so different. Why do you have so much joy? I don't think the staff and students were putting on a show. They were living a life that was just different. And it was a palpable difference. Patrick could see it and he could feel it. And what he saw was beautiful and attractive. Lives that loved Jesus and lives that loved each other. I'm not sure this is something we're used to doing. What does the honourable, aesthetically pleasing and beautiful life look like? Here's a giveaway. Read chapters 3 and 4. That's what we're going to be doing. That is spelling out in the following chapters the beautiful life, how we submit to authorities like kings and governments, how servants and masters respect each other how husbands and wives embrace their roles in marriage, how Christians do good to, even, to those who even persecute them. There is no area of life where Jesus does not influence how we live and think. And so in the coming weeks, pay, pay close attention because Peter will unfold for us the sort of living that honours and glorifies God, the beautiful life. We could title chapters 3 and 4, The Beautiful Life, part 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6. Now, why do all that? See the reason in verse 12 again, right at the end. Because the world is going to speak against us as an evildoer. 
In Peter's time, it was said that what the church believed and taught would bring harm to others. That sounds oddly familiar to our time as well, doesn't it? So how do Christians respond? By doing good. By doing good, honourable, beautiful actions. Because when Jesus returns, the world will see your actions for what they are. Truly good. Truly beautiful. And truly glorifying to God. And the non-believing world will then glorify God for it. I think Peter here is intentionally borrowing from the words of Jesus at this point where Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, I take this to mean that on judgment day, the day of visitation that Peter refers to, God will make it clear what the actions of his followers are. The bad guys were actually the good guys. Friends, nobody wants to be the bad guy, yet here we are. In a world that doesn't understand Christians, that routinely mocks and ignores Jesus, a world that mocks you and calls you an evildoer, that your beliefs are somehow harmful to others. Into this world, Peter gives these words of great comfort and reassurance. The world might see you as a bad guy, but God sees you very differently. And how God sees you is infinitely more important. His perception is the reality that we have to see ourselves in. So keep saying no to the world's sins. Keep living lives of beauty that glorify God. Keep being the bad guys. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, as we come to you, the living stone, who was rejected by men, but in your Father's sight, chosen and precious, build us up as a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. Grow us in a love for your word, a love for each other, and a desire to do what is good and beautiful, even in the face of mocking and jeering and the attempting of shame. Help us to remember our wonderful new identity in your son, the intense and astonishing privilege it is to be your people. And then help us to keep living for the world to come, to glorify you and to do all this for our joy. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.